This is Dennis Ramundi. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg, author of American Beta and expert on all things spiritual. Uh, our guest today, <laughs> uh, Mark Nepo. He is originally from Brooklyn, New York. He is a poet, a philosopher, a survivor of cancer. Uh, he's been writing in the fields of poetry and spirituality for 30 years. Uh, he broke onto the scene uh, with his best-selling, New York Times best-selling uh, book, uh, uh, of Awake, the Book of Awakening, and his current book, and I think his 19th book, is uh, Things That Join the Sea and the Sky. Mark, thank you so very much for taking the time to come on with us today. It's wonderful to be with you. Thanks for having me. Mark, um, for those uh, listeners who are not uh, familiar with you and your work, perhaps you can give us a sort of thumbnail uh, overview or uh, a look back on how you came to the work you do and the sort of origins of your own spiritual path. Sure. You know, um, I think I think to start with, well, I'm, I'm 66 uh, right now, always getting older as we all are. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Yes, we are. <laughs> Boy, and you know, when I met someone uh, our age, uh, when I was younger, I thought they were very old. <laughs> it doesn't seem so old <laughs> to me now. Um, but, you know, when I was a, a boy, a young boy, I mean, before I had language for any of this, you know, I, I, I think that um, the world, uh, especially the invisible world, the wholeness of the universe, God, whatever name you want to give to that totality, always has spoken to me through metaphor. Even as a boy, you know, I'd be alone in the woods and the wind through the trees would, would speak to me in patterns. They'd say, look, look, look what happens when we let things through. What is that like? How can you use that? Go, think about that. And so I was always in conversation with the universe. And, and then, you know, in high school, um, I, I started to actually write uh, because the first woman I fell in love with broke my heart which is archetypal, and, uh, and you know, I didn't have any, um, I wasn't a loner, but I didn't have any close, deep friendships yet in high school, you know, it, was, it wasn't until I got to college that I started to have my first real soul friends, so I began in high school writing as a way to make sense of, of this broken heart, and, you know, again, I, I started to realize that as I did start to heal, Huh, I, I wasn't just in conversation with myself. Actually, through the open, broken, open heart, um, I had deepened in another way, uh, another trail of conversation with the universe. And so, um, you know, it wasn't until I was in college, which was in upstate New York and Cortland State, in the uh, State University of New York system, uh, that I realized that I was a poet. And that really came to me in a vision. Um, and I really hadn't written much, really. Um, but, you know, I, I went home excited to declare to my parents who were, you know, uh, grew up in the Great Depression and were very focused on survival and the literal nature of things to help their children get through. And I came home and declared, hey, I can't wait to tell you I'm a poet. And had one of those, yeah, had one of those classic arguments with my father, especially, how are you going to make a living? And 
And what have you written? And of course, I hadn't written anything, but I knew I, knew I was a poet. <laughs> and, uh, and out of my, you know, excited uh, mouth, uh, I don't know where it came from, but I said to my father, I'm going to live a making. And there was a moment of silence, and then he just dismissed that as gibberish. And I went away thinking, where did that come from? And what does that mean? And began to slowly discover what that meant to live a making. Now, of course, everyone, whether you're an artist or not, everyone has to uh, has to find their own personal relationship with surviving and thriving. And so making a living is surviving, but living and making is thriving. And how do we balance those? So I, you know, was committed and began working greatly and, you know, went through, um, got my doctorate at SUNY Albany in poetry and English and um, and then I uh, started teaching at the, actually at the University of Albany when in my early 30s um, I was uh, you know fell into a journey with this rare form of lymphoma and was turned inside uh, out and upside down and almost died had two uh, it was a three-year, the heat of that journey was three years in which I had a large tumor growing in my skull bone pressing on my brain. And that, after all kinds of trials and tribulations, vanished, actually, and was kind of an obvious miracle. <clears throat> and within a year of being thrown back into life, um, there was a sister tumor on a rib in my back, and it began to grow. And now all the things that, that in the obvious miracle didn't work. Um, and I had to work with traditional medicine. And I had that rib and its adjacent muscles removed surgically. And I had to go through, because it was a rare form of lymphoma, <clears throat> and I didn't have any, I should have had terrible symptoms, but mm -hmm. I didn't. And so I was a candidate for very aggressive chemotherapy, which almost killed me. And finally had to say no to that. And was kind of spit back out into the life from the mouth of the whale of cancer, like a modern Jonah. And, and all of a sudden, um, you know, there was no normal to return to. Everything mm -hmm. that had my life was gone. <clears throat> it was like when I was diagnosed, um, I went through the door, and I think anyone listening who has been through a life-threatening situation will understand this. I went through a door to find out what was wrong, and when I was diagnosed, the door I went through had vanished. Mm -hmm. Life is, up to that moment, was gone and over, and it was a new world. And, you know, being blessed to still be here on the other side of all that, I was now, this was... It's got about 36. And a couple of things. A couple of things. A couple of things. I'll get a little echo. You hear it? No? No. Phil? Yes? Uh, uh, Mark said he's getting an echo. Are you hearing it? or? I'm hearing it, yeah. I'm not hearing you. We're okay. Oh, hearing me. Okay. All right. Let's continue and see if it... Maybe that was just a momentary thing. So, on the other side of all this, um, 
you know, some of the, the key fundamental ways that I had been transformed. Uh, you know, one involved that while I was always from an early age, kind of, again, without language for it, I was basically a mystical being. And let me pause and say that for me, the, the, the very kind of basic definition of a mystic is if you believe in anything larger than yourself, mm -hmm. you're a mystic. And it's only when we start to try to name that, that largeness, that invisible wholeness, that we go to our theological corners, you know. Mm -hmm. But really, if you believe in anything larger than yourself, you're a mystic. And even an atheist believes in something larger than themselves. They just call it nothing instead of everything. Mm -hmm. So fine, we can still have a conversation. But Mark, uh, if I could interject, I want to ask you one question. Uh, yeah. So you you, uh, you you got a PhD. That's a lot of work to get a PhD in in uh, in English uh, literature uh, from friends of mine who have done that, and so that was. Uh, and then was when did your uh, attention turn towards spirituality? Was it the diagnosis of cancer and dealing with that that shifted your interest? I mean, what what we what was your dissertation on? What were you interested in in literature up to that point? And then where did it go once? Uh, or did you give up on literature altogether once you were diagnosed with cancer? Well, so, and this dovetails, thank you for that question, yeah. with the ways that I was transformed. So, you know, I always, without realizing what to call spirituality, I was always interested in that, in the larger sense and the relationship of, of a living being with the whole, W-H-O-L-E. And, um, and, you know, I was in a very creative uh doctoral program where I was able to do my first book of poetry was actually my dissertation. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, but, you know, I, I went about all of that through my head. I was very intellectual and conceptual, even though mm -hmm. my interest, the subject I was interested in was mystical and heart-centered and holistic. I went about it in a very rational w way. And I think, you know, I, I it didn't, I, and I was also say that at that early age, I was driven to peace, which didn't really work. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, and so, you know, almost dying and surviving, all of that changed because, I, you know, I dropped from my head into my heart through no wisdom of my own, but just from what this experience of almost dying and still being here did, it it stripped me of all the baggage that I had been taught was required, both intellectually, fundamentally, conceptually, relationally, and it it made it so that there was very little between me and life. Mm -hmm. Like the all had been thinned, if not removed. And so now, you know, like snow in March melting into the ground my whole sense, my whole consciousness melted into the ground of my heart. And so ever since then, my mind has served my heart and not the other way around. And so everything got more real and direct. And the boundaries between genres, for instance, just started to vanish. You know, my writing and my books and is, I mean, I respect, you know, any one genre, you can devote your whole life to being a novelist or a scholar. And that's worthy, and I don't, uh, you know, demean that in any way. But for me, all of the genres after that started to become tools in one toolbox. So if you, you know, in all of my work, um, it's hard to 
put it, you know, my, my spiritual nonfiction books are categorized that way. But, you know, basically it's a very personal voice. It's a narrative voice. When I need to use story, I use story. When I need to use history, I become a scholar. Uh-huh. When I, to, dis, to explore the larger notions, I become a philosopher. Um, I just use whatever is needed and weave it all into one. So, you know, I think that um, I was, interestingly, always interested in literature and stories that were spiritual, that were real, that were grounded, and it was only... You know, I think would I have evolved the same way without my cancer journey? Maybe. It probably would have taken a lot longer, and I don't know if I would have gotten hit, hit that fundamental rock foundation. Um, I might have still been struggling between my mind and my heart. So I think it definitely, you know, just made me naked and raw in the presence of being. I, I would say that the other major a difference, which again I had inclinations toward, but it really blew open after my cancer journey. Was, you know, I'm Jewish and I feel a great tie to the heritage, but I'm a student of all paths, mm-hmm. and that definitely came because during that journey, um, I was blessed to have people from all faiths offer me kindness and blessings and help, and so when I was, you know, on the other side of it still blessed to be here, um, I wasn't, and I'm still not wise enough to know what worked and what didn't. And, you know, and so ever since then, all my work, my inquiry, my books, my teaching, I am committed to revealing what I feel is the common center of all paths and the unique gifts of each. And, and even more so, the teacher in me is committed to introducing people to their own wisdom and how to personalize these things in their own lives. Mark, uh, I have two strange questions about your of as you were uh, because I too am a and uh, Dennis, I'm having a little trouble hearing you. you yeah, uh, uh, no, that's Phil. Phil, uh, that's Phil? You're, you're you're having a problem, Phil. You you have to get off the. The speakerphone, or uh, I mean, you have to get on the um, uh, oh. the speaker and your headset. Something's not working there. Something's not good with the headset. Now, now that's good. Yeah, yeah that's, that's good. Better. Yeah. Yeah. No. Oh, okay. Yeah. So yeah, you said you had. Two. Sorry about that. Um, so okay. yes, as a as a fellow Brooklyn boy growing up, I have two questions. One is uh, you mentioned walking in the woods. Um, that was not a feature of my life in Brooklyn <laughs> as a child. And the other is, uh, did your parents ever uh, accommodate uh, or get uh, used to your uh, earning a living as a poet? Well, so for the first question, you know, I, it's, I always joke because <laughs> I learn a lot from nature, but I'm not really comfortable in it. You know, because I, I really am an urban creature. You know, I mean, I'm much, you can just drop me in any city and I feel, you know, like a farm boy would be in the woods. I'm just comfortable in any city. I visit nature. So I feel like, you know, I have a visa for in nature. I am not a permanent resident. And, um, but I have learned so much from the little pieces. But I like Whitman, which I love so much about Whitman. You know, Whitman was the first real poet, especially American poet, to treat. Uh, you know, the cities and the urban landscape with equal reverence and, and wonder 
mm-hmm. as Thoreau would say, would would do nature. And he and you know, and I've always uh, felt that and felt more at home. But I've been blessed to have friends who are comfortable in nature, kind of you know, escort me or take me along. You know, <laughs> I, I recently here's a good example, and it's it's in the one life we're given. Uh, I have friends in Charleston where I just came back. I teach there every year. And I have friends who are native there their whole lives. And so, you know, on the tail end of a retreat, we we always have a day where we can spend time together. And they took me out to what was once a plantation, which is now a wildlife preserve uh, in, in south of Charleston. Well, there were alligators and all kinds of things there. And they're just, you know, we're walking on a path. And I've never, you know, I'd never seen an alligator in person. And these things are primordial and, mm-hmm. and truly cold-blooded. And I'm looking, you know, at this, literally this 12 to 14 foot alligator that's maybe, you know, 50 feet from us in, in the water on the edge of the shore. And we're walking on a gravel path. And I'm thinking, he doesn't know that he's supposed to stay off the path. <laughs> uh-huh. And, and, you know, I, I was very uncomfortable and was in their care and we obviously got through it okay but the metaphor there was you know that we often we often find ourselves especially in modern times as observers of a world that we think we're safe from i think you can see this especially with embedded reporters in in scenes of war oh because they're watching and they're recording oh we're exempt from this you know oh we can we can watch the alligator and it'll be fine. Well, that's dangerous. We have to have respect that we are a part of everything we see. You know, mm-hmm. so that. And your parents? And my pa- and my parents. So, you know, they never really, I, I think that, you know, both of them are gone now. And uh, uh, my father was 93, died about four years ago, and my mother laughed a year and a half ago in 89, and, um, you know, they, they never really, you know, as I said, they came from the Depression, very literal, very intelligent, and books were everywhere in our home, but they always were very nonfiction, historical, very literal-minded, and um, very creative, both of them. My father was a master woodworker. Uh, my mother was an amazing uh, knitter and weaver and, and did quilts and all kinds of things. So I think the creativity, the for, creative force definitely came through them. Um, but, you know, the, I, the, I spoke a different, we spoke different languages. And so they, they never quite understood it. They never really read very much of my work. Um, I, you know, and at the end of uh, toward the end of their lives, you know, uh, when it was in 2010 that Oprah discovered my work, and so you know, as that got more attention, they were proud of me. You know, they, well, honestly, I don't think they knew what for, but right. uh-huh. you know, you know, like you know, my father had seen uh, one of the interviews I'd done on with Oprah on TV, and when we talked, and he was in his late 80s then, and I could tell he really was trying, you know, to be nice. He was proud of me, but he really didn't get any of it. And he, mm-hmm. uh, which was fine, you know, there are things, and I don't mean that as a, from, you know, as a demeaning thing, because there are ways that he embraced the world through his 
woodworking and his creativity and his love of sailing that I didn't quite understand completely. But, you know, he just, you know, the only thing he could offer was that, um, boy, you really, you have a good voice, you know, you'd be good on radio. <laughs> uh-huh. and I, Very good. Thanks, Dad. Yeah, you yeah, know. yeah. Hey, hey <laughs> uh, 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 Mark, I wanted to ask you, uh, I'm very curious. Uh, everyone I know that's ever written a book has is, is hoped that uh, Oprah Winfrey would uh, feature it or discover it somehow. Uh, how did that happen for you? What was that experience like? And did it come uh, subsequent to your cancer diagnosis? I assume it did. Because, uh, yeah, yes. I, you know, it, it, I, this came, um, God, I think I was 58 or 59 when Oprah discovered my work. And, you know, I was in my 30s when I went through cancer. And, um, you know, uh, and, you know, the Book of Awakening was published in 2000. And, had a wonderful word of mouth following uh, for a year, ten years before Oprah discovered it, and and when she did, it immediately, literally, literally within like twenty four to forty eight hours, it was all over the world. Wow! It was number one on you know Amazon, and it was on its way to being number one at the New York Times bestseller list, and you know within a week or ten days there were all kinds of offers from foreign publishers to translate it. Um, so it's just, you know, and how that happened, you know, I know people often, often ask and, um, and again, you know, this was through no efforts or wisdom or strategies on my part. Uh, this came like, you know, grace, like, you know, yeah. the sun coming through clouds all of a sudden I was, um, unbeknownst to me, a, one of Oprah's, assistance, personal assistance, a young woman in Chicago, and who I know uh, well now because of all this. And, um, and she was taking a yoga class. And a lot of times uh, uh, yoga teachers really are drawn to the Book of Awakening and often quote it to begin yoga sessions. So her teacher was doing that. And she became uh, connected to work and got the Book of Awakening. And then a year uh, later, she gave the book to Oprah as a birthday present. Ah, see, uh-huh. now all of you authors listening, uh, do what Mark did, and you too will get on Oprah. Well, there's the formula for well, getting on Oprah. <laughs> well, what was so uh, amazing and humbling is that you know we've all given books to friends or to uh, you know it all depends. Also. You know, she could have easily had looked at it and said, oh, that's really nice. Thanks a lot. But we have to be in the right moment of opening where what we're given and what we're looking for connect. And it just happened again through nothing that any of us did. She was exactly what she was looking for at that time. So the next thing I know, she was saying to somebody, who is this guy? And I want to talk to him. And so, you know, I got a call. And you know, wondered which of my friends is playing a joke on me. (laughs) That's great. Mark, um, in addition to your your, uh, books, um, you also do workshops. Tell us uh, what you do in the workshops uh, and how you work with people and what the themes might be and what the format is. Well, I I often uh, take, you know, because I feel that that, um, the life of teaching and the life of my writing have started to blur, wonderfully blur over the years. 
And they're very much, in a way, the same. They both involve deep listening. And, um, you know, I often uh, take the themes from my books and create um, over, usually over two or three days, workshops or retreats, where what, I, what my job is, I feel, as a teacher, is to help introduce, as I mentioned, people to their own gifts and their own wisdom, and that I don't have any answers, that uh, all I can do is uh, be a, to open up a heart space, which I do through uh -huh. stories or metaphors, and then we enter that heart space together and we compare notes on what it is to be alive. And so through the course of, of three days, I will have six or seven sessions, which each will start uh, around a theme, you know, um, uh, like the wisdom of a broken heart or reliable truths or saying yes to life, um, you know, or navigating trouble. And, and I'll take each of those and will often start uh, by sharing a poem, a story, or, or a metaphor. And, and then out of that, we'll have a discussion, and then I will have shaped questions, which I love. Uh, in fact, in the new book, there are a hundred journal questions in the back of it, which I've gathered through years of teaching and offered to the reader. But I'll ask, devise questions on these themes that will invite people to first then we go through a concentric circle of inquiry where first they will reflect or meditate on it, then they will journal on it, and then they'll talk in uh, pairs where they only listen to each other. They can't mm -hmm. cross talk. And then we come back and see what we've discovered, if anything, as a, as a larger group. And so we go through this sequence through the whole time together uh, with frequent times of just checking in into the whole group and saying, where are you, what's going on, what, uh, what's up, you know, what's confusing, what's uh, surprising, what's irritating. Um, and so, you know, the, the best thing that happens in that space, and when I know, um, uh, is when, when I can do a good job, which involves starting more things than we can finish, so that whatever we explore spills out of whatever space we're in into the rest of people's lives because when we gather like that, and that's in a long lineage of gathering like that, people have done it forever, um, that gathering is a resource and not a refuge. It's not a place to hide from life. It's a place to get resources to better live life. And so the best thing that happens in those spaces is when who's the teacher moves around the room and you can feel it. Mm -hmm. It doesn't get any better than that. You know, one of the things I like to start with is a is a wonderful uh, practice in the Native American tradition of elder councils. We'll use them today, and elder councils traditionally meet in circle, not for equity, but so that everyone has a direct view of the center. Wow, I love that. Mm -hmm. What's implicit in that is that. We need everybody's view to grasp the center or the whole or the totality of life. Um, that no one view, you know, we could be on opposite sides of the circle and say, oh, and, you know, we see the center and we just say, oh, yeah, we see the same thing. Well, we don't. And we have to take the time to. So the other assumption that I love about, about that, implicit in that practice, 
is that we gather meaning, we don't choose it. Uh-huh. Yeah, we gather meaning. We need mm-hmm. everybody. The, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And so the older I get, I'm not interested in debate, argument, persuasion. Um, mm-hmm. I'm interested in adding and gathering meaning. Mm-hmm. And, 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 not either or. Mark, uh, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to come on with us today. Phil, did you have any final points or questions? And I want to mention yes, to our I, listeners, I, I, things that join the sea and the sky. Uh, yes, that's book. what I wanted yeah. to ask Mark about. Tell us about your new book uh, as briefly as you can because we're running out of time. And uh, why is it different from all your other books? Well, it's different and it's not in the sense that, you know, it's the same central voice that comes through my inquiry, but it's different in in the shape of what I've found. So this book comes out of all my years. I've always kept a journal, and this comes out of journaling. So it's one of my most intimate books. And what I've done is taken over the last 15 years, I've surfaced the most uh, profound and troubling and questions and little stories and observations that have come up, and I've worked with those um, to create 147, I think it is, uh, entries that, uh, and have shaped them to, to really, and gathered them in passages that we all go through in the 17 sections in the book. And then in the back, I have an essay about the art of journaling with some guidelines and the 100 journal questions to invite people into and the difference between journaling and a diary is very important a diary is just kind of an account of circumstance but a journal is the space in which we have our conversation with the universe and that's a very different so mm-hmm. so that's the space where we get to tell the truth regardless of who's listening uh, whether we're wrong or right or <laughs> or whatever and and that you know underneath that is that I, I believe that the the journey of ex- the life of expression is healing regardless of the artifact of expressing. Very good. Well, thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. We'll look forward to seeing the book. When, what's the publication date? Well, it's out. It should be uh, the publication date November first. But I just got word that. There's actual books in the in the Sounds True warehouse, so and it's available like pre-order on Amazon. So it's it's going to be here soon. Okay, good. So we're uh, uh, by the time this goes up, people will be able to pre-order it, and mm-hmm. uh, and people tuning in uh, after November of 2017 will no doubt be able to get it easily enough at all the usual places. Thank you, Mark. Oh, you're welcome. Thank Thank you. you. Great show.